Welcome to episode 55 of the Infectious Historians podcast. I'm Merle Eisenberg. And I'm Lee Mordecai. It's April 1st, and in today's episode, we're going to talk about a disease we haven't spoken about yet, polio, and a region we actually haven't touched upon either, which is Eastern Europe during the Cold War. Our guest today is Dora Varga, who is a senior lecturer in medical humanities at the University of Exeter in the United Kingdom. Dora's broader work spans from the politics of epidemic management to public health systems and access to therapeutics. Her book, which will be the center of the discussion today, is Polio Across the Iron Curtain, Hungary's Cold War with an Epidemic, which was published in 2018 with Cambridge University Press. She's also written on global infrastructure of diphtheria, the politics of vaccination in Eastern Europe, hospital care of disabled children in communist contexts, and about shifting epidemic narratives in historical analysis. Dora has three other projects, a research project titled After the End of Disease, which uses interdisciplinary collaboration to think past the conventional narrative and need epidemic bell curves to identify, collect, and disseminate different understandings of disease impacts. A second project entitled Socialist Medicine and Alternative Global Health History, funded by the prestigious ERC starting grant, and investigates the role of the socialist world in global health structures and networks. And the third project is funded by the Wellcome Trust, and this is entitled Connecting Three Worlds, and it explores socialist networks in public health, technical assistance programs, and mental health in the post-World War II era. Finally, Dora is co-editor of the journal The Social History of Medicine, which is a key journal for the history of medicine. So hi, Dora. Hello. So Merle, although the Soviet Union did come up in our earlier episodes on several occasions, for example, in the context of plague control on, on the episode we had with Susan Jones, this is really our first foray into Eastern Europe behind the proverbial Iron Curtain to understand the impact of a disease in a very different context than the context we've examined so far. Until now, we have discussed ancient, medieval, modern periods, diseases, epidemics, and so on, but we haven't discussed diseases under Cold War socialism, or to use Dora's term, socialized medicine. And this will be, I hope, a, a way, a path into a time and place that our listeners know about the Cold War, but through considering questions of medicine and disease that are often left aside from mainstream or Western narratives of disease and medicine, or at least the ones that you and I have read a lot about. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, Lee. I've read widely on Cold War topics, I think mostly just for my own personal interest. And we have spent time on this podcast and our own published work in the American Historical Review talking about the importance of mid-20th century histories of medicine and disease. But the socialized, quote unquote, communist side of things are often left aside. So I'm excited to bring that conversation into our podcast. And on a separate note, polio is a disease I always hear about from my parents, particularly my mom, actually. In a U.S. context, it seems to me the last epidemic that older baby boomers really remember. You know, my grandmother actually had polio, or at least that's what I was told growing up. So she was paralyzed from the waist down. But yeah, it's a good point. Polio is really the only epidemic I was vaguely aware of growing up. And even it was more the disease grandma had than a broader epidemic for me. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that, Lee. And I didn't know that. You learn new things every day. I suppose. If listeners want to read about this context because they're a bit younger, I'd actually recommend the introduction to Nancy Toms' Gospel of Germs, who was on this podcast back in early September 2020, since she lays out a similar trajectory of her own knowledge of disease across the 20th century. But before we turn to Polio League, what's happening in Israel? I think I see pictures of young people partying at bars these days. So are you doing that? Yeah, my days of partying at bars are currently on hold, at least until my daughter gets a bit older. But yeah, it's currently Passover here. We had our family Passover Seder feast, essentially, about a week ago. This was after we missed last year because of COVID. So things are definitely getting back to normal here, both with regards to family meetings, but also just walking around. Streets are packed. The streets in Jerusalem, where I live, are, are packed. His shops are full, restaurants are full, public transportation is full. So I've watched trams and buses go by and people don't even have a place to stand in there. I'm not sure how infection rates are not going up again, but I guess the vaccines are working and we are getting some kind of herd immunity here. Yeah, that's interesting that 
you guys are back to normal when it comes to satyrs. I mean, we still did Zoom satyrs both days, although one day we had our pod mates over. So maybe next year it will be like Jerusalem, as we always say, for satyrs. I, I hope so for you guys, yeah. No, but again, so vaccination rates are very high here. I think we're probably around 50 or 60% at this point of people have, have received both shots. So it does have an effect at some point. But how are things going on with you, Merle? I, I can see you're not in your usual house. What, what happened? Yeah, we're on our Passover Easter vacation at the moment with the only family we can travel with, which is our podmates. So it's three kids under four and four adults in a rented converted farmhouse on the Eastern Shore in Maryland to relax. I'm not sure how much relaxing there's going to be, as you know, Lee. At the moment, I can hear them fighting probably over the stuffed animal and toy forms of the various members of Paw Patrol. Do you know Paw Patrol, Lee? Paw Patrol, Paw Patrol. Yeah, I haven't, I've never watched it, but you've actually asked me about it. So I, I guess your kids are kind of obsessed with it. Yeah, well, there's dogs who are firefighters and dogs who are cops and dogs who are diggers. I mean, my kids don't know it as a show, as I think I've mentioned before. They only know it as the interesting dogs that wear cool outfits. You know, that's what they like. Otherwise, as for COVID, there's basically a sense of inevitability, it seems like, in most of the United States at this point. We are going to be at soon, or we're at the beginning of a fourth wave that's happening in Maryland, among other places. But no one running the show wants to stop the various reopenings and seems to think vaccines are basically going to save us during this process. It's a combination of clearly some form of technological utopianism and a lack of urgency by those in charge at a state level who are probably honestly already vaccinated along with their friends and family, I would guess. So it's actually pretty remarkable how everyone knows what's happening, but no one seems to care. Yeah, it's a good point. And, and I think part of this might be that we have been in COVID for over a year at this point. And I think, so at least the way I see it from here, even those politicians and officials who messed up and did not react as effectively or, or as they should have, haven't really paid any price, right? They didn't suffer any consequences or any major consequences with the big exception, perhaps being Donald Trump, if you want to understand his, his defeat in the general elections in that context. But other than that, my sense is that broadly speaking, populations seem to be very tolerant of official politician mistakes here. So Dora, where are you and what's happening around you? I'm in the UK. I'm in Devon, um, which is in the southwest part. And it has been the least affected part of England, actually, um, consistently. So we've been very lucky, partly because there's not much public transportation here. And the population is quite scattered. I live in a tiny village outside of Exeter. And it's it's really, you know, there's no problem of keeping distance <laughs> with people. It's mostly cows and sheep and, <laughs> and meadows. They're just starting to ease the regulations. We've been under quite severe lockdown, I think, um, compared to most of the world. Um, schools were closed for two and a half months. Um, so there was homeschooling. You could only meet one person outdoors at a time. And that was, uh, obviously, if you have kids, like I do, um, you can't meet anyone <laughs> because you're already three people. And so now you can meet up to six people outdoors, which is a huge change. Um, still only supermarkets are open, essential shops, as they call them. But uh, it's going to ease a bit in a couple of weeks where uh, pub gardens and restaurants, terraces will be opening. So that's very exciting. Just in time for the summer. Well, the summer, big, great English <laughs> spring and summer. So we'll see. We can we can sit in pub gardens in the rain, um, which is how it's going to look like. <laughs> Fair point. But one question I do have is that it sounds like you're in a relatively rural setting. So would lockdowns be enforced there in a similar manner to the way they are enforced in more populated areas, so to speak? And or are people themselves maybe a bit more lax with regards to regulations? I mean, I mean, I know my parents live in a rural setting as well, and it seems that COVID has never reached there. I mean, they just continue to to behave normally. I mean, 
like normally pre-COVID normally? I think there are little ways in which people kind of are more relaxed, but but everybody pretty much keeps to to the regulations from you know what I see. Um, you might go into other people's gardens or maybe three people are uh, walking a dog together, but that's kind of as crazy as it gets. Uh, I think now the infection rate has gone down quite significantly. The death um, rates and the hospitalization has gone down really, really a lot, uh, mostly due to vaccination and to the long extended lockdown. Um, so people are getting a bit more relaxed and uh, and a bit less attentive to, to the regulations. But still, you know, if you go into a supermarket or anywhere indoors, um, people will be wearing the masks and, um, you know, will be keeping crossing the street to give you space. So it's, uh, it's kind of um, impressive, actually. So maybe we can now turn to the interview and I'll ask my famous, infamous first question, which is, can you tell us maybe from a medical standpoint first, and then we'll get into more specifics, what is polio? So polio is an infectious disease. It's uh, caused by a virus and it uh, travels by way of the um, very aptly named fecal oral route. So uh, enters the body through a gastrointestinal system and uh, basically in a way, it's kind of similar to COVID that it um, might not cause um, uh, significant symptoms. It can be similar to a flu, but in a small percentage of the cases, it will cause uh, paralysis. Uh, that would be paralysis most often on the limbs, so legs and arms, <clears throat> and uh, sometimes the torso. And the most severe case is uh, when it uh, attacks the respiratory muscles which then um, prevent the person from being able to breathe. And that's why they developed uh, medical technologies to assist people in breathing um, when that happens. But in the earlier days, that was kind of a death sentence. And is the paralysis permanent? That depends on the treatment, actually. It's, it can be permanent. So if the limbs are affected and the and the nerves are affected significantly, then it can be. And in a lot of cases, uh, it is. But uh, in the um, beginning acute phase of the disease, when, um, when people get it, uh, there are treatments that can increase the possibility of actually um, regaining the, <laughs> the regaining movement of, uh, of the muscles. And that was actually developed by an Australian nurse um, called Sister Kenny. And Naomi Rogers has uh, written about this in more detail, how that method actually challenged uh, the um, existing treatment uh, regimens and uh, how it actually challenged the medical authority as well. So... Are there particular populations this strikes? I always think of this as children, for example, from the stories my mom used to tell about some of her neighbors keeping their kids inside during the summer, for example. Yeah, so there are two um, particularities about the disease. It used to come uh, mostly in the summer months um, in temperate climate and not every summer. So it came every couple of years in the summer months. And it mainly attacked uh, children. But that demographic started to change, especially in, in places like the United States, when older and older populations got um, infected and, and uh, paralyzed. While in other countries like Hungary, younger and younger populations uh, got infected. So there's also a kind of inconsistency in that uh, geographically and over time. How did it come back? So do we know if it came back through the water or unsanitary practices or anything like that? Yeah, it's kind of unclear what prompted the, the outbreak. And uh, the interesting thing is, and I'm sure that there will be virologists out there who will, and, and epidemiologists out there who will um, uh, uh, say, oh, this is all wrong. But uh, but it's not, I haven't found a really clear answer to, you know, to why they came back when they came back and what prompted that. There were all kinds of um, speculations about this. But once there was a vaccine developed and a vaccination was successful, um, most of the research into this pretty much stopped. It was no longer relevant. So there are, I think, a lot of unanswered questions regarding polio, which just you know didn't get followed up. There were speculations about climate, about temperature, 
um, about people, you know, being in water, for instance, where it's um, uh, it would spread more easily. So um, in the heat, when people sought refuge in swimming pools and, and uh, lakes and so on. One other question that I was curious to set the scene is, I always think of this as a 20th century disease. Is there a reason for that, that it's not so prevalent or at least discussed earlier on? There are, when you um, open a book on the history of polio, there's going to be, or, or any popular representation of the his- history, there's going to be an ancient Egyptian representation of figure who's standing in a particular way. And that is often used as, oh, there was already polio in ancient Egypt. I'm not a big fan of retrospective <laughs> diagnosis, so I'm kind of <laughs> uh, not very interested, at least in, in that regard. It does get identified and diagnosed as a disease in the late 19th century. It's called, uh, in certain countries, it's still called Heinemedin disease because of the two uh, doctors who had identified it and uh, and set up the standard diagnosis of, uh, of this. You really start seeing epidemic waves from the late 19th century in places like Sweden. So that's one of the key areas uh, at that time. And then the United States uh, in the early 20th century becomes uh, a key point. In other places, you see epidemic waves coming later on um, in the in the first half of the 20th century, and it really takes off globally as a as an issue, as a as a significant issue in the 1950s. So, what would be your understanding of where it came from and when in the 19th century or the more modern period, rather than trying to to trace the very ancient history back to ancient Egypt? There's a theory that was also um, put forth by Albert Sabin, who was the, one of the developers of the vaccine is that polio is a so-called civilizational disease. The theory was that if you don't have proper sanitation and uh, there's a different kind of environment that people live in, then in that environment, they're exposed to the virus at a very early age. And and therefore it's, it's endemic, but it also doesn't cause such severe effects because somehow people are are used to it, but when you have societies uh, developing sanitation, which of course is great for uh, avoiding diseases like cholera, for instance, then you have a change in that adaptation and a change of uh, of relationship between the the virus and and the human population, and that is what's causing the the epidemic outbreaks. So it's essentially more sanitation, but not enough sanitation. Is is that the point? I don't think that's that, that's a that's a very interesting question. But increasing sanitation or increasing, you know, cleanliness came up as a, a proposal for a solution because there were no no differences between, for instance, um, parts of cities that were you know worse off and uh, and people living in in worse conditions and in uh, in very affluent parts of the of the cities where um, uh, living standard was uh, higher. That was the puzzle. That it was not like um, like diseases that uh, that societies encountered before. It was not a, a disease of poverty. It was not a disease of a particular class. So the answer to it was not necessarily increasing sanitation or increasing cleanliness. Although there were in the early twentieth um, century, there were of course um, attempts to this kind of preventative solutions were not to exert oneself physically. So trying to get children not to over-exercise, you know, in the heat, especially uh, not to visit swimming pools and uh, water, um, not to mix with uh, other people much in times of outbreaks. There was also like really weird things um, that were put forth um, by physicians, um, for instance, not wearing shorts so that your knees could show somehow that somehow there was something with temperature that people were trying to find out there was something going on or you shouldn't um, eat fallen fruit because that might be contaminated. Nothing really worked um, until actually the the vaccines um, appeared. So maybe that's a good segue then into telling us how polio, to use Lee's favorite phrase, was conquered in the mid-20th century. Before we get to that, uh, I'd like to point out that 
actually, the, in terms of numbers, did not you know um, affect a huge number of people, and that's that's one of the critiques uh, currently about um, uh, eradication programs that it's it's not necessarily uh, a really high concern compared to other diseases that uh, that cause a lot of death and a lot of uh, public health problems. But it did. It was a very important disease in the in the post war era for various reasons. So there was a lot of work done among virologists uh, on polio, and it was a was a very significant disease, as you both mentioned. It's kind of you know something that people talk about and remember, and and it's still there in the people's lives as a memory or or as a as an imprint on their bodies. The reason why uh, polio was very important and all this attention and money and funding went into this is because we're in this moment after World War II where um, societies are rebuilding um, themselves after a huge destruction. There were um, uh, an incredibly high amount of people uh, that were lost in these uh, in these wars. So, and a lot of rebuilding having to be done. So there were a lot of uh, pronatalist uh, policies uh, around the world trying to boost um, populations of uh, nations. Children were um, an incredibly important part of this, uh, especially in places that were newly defining themselves politically or new states and you know kind of industrial production became uh, more and more important so you needed a lot of children and you needed able-bodied people to kind of build this future that um that was emerging from from the ruins so to speak and so um polio went completely against these aims and and it particularly hit the chord uh, in that way so just as a reminder, I think the Salk vaccine is one of the most famous vaccines in the world, which was uh, developed by Jonas Salk and partly funded by the March of Dimes, um, which was this basically charity movement, as you would um, say in the UK, donations uh, from the general population. And he developed a, a vaccine that was made of uh, dead viruses killed with uh, formaldehyde. And that was injected into the body and the body would um, produce an immune response to that. This was uh, introduced in 1955 um, after a mass trial in the US and quickly um, started uh, being produced all around the world. Neither of uh, this uh, vaccine was not patented. Yes, that actually ties into a couple of other questions. First, were there attempts to develop a vaccine on the other side of, of the Cold War, so the other side of the Iron Curtain, so to speak, the socialist world, because, I mean, as you said, we're in the post-war period. So that's the first question. And the second question is, why was the, the vaccine not patented? I mean, who made that decision and how was this seen at the time? So there were several vaccines in the running at the time, but all of them start at least started to be developed in the, in the United States. So Jonas Salk was working on the killed virus vaccine and uh, Albert Sabin, Hilary Kaprowski and Harold Cox were working on live virus vaccines. Um, these were tested uh, all around the world, um, which is amazing history um, in itself. So that's kind of global um, vaccine testing um, starts already then. And uh, I think the, the decision was um, uh, coming from Jonas Salk, who famously said, you can't patent the sun. So why, why would you patent the sun? Or, uh, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. I'm, I'm not, uh, I don't remember um, the quote exactly. But there was a sense that this is a common problem and this belongs to everyone. Uh, and so this was uh, made available for people to produce. But of course, you know, that alone is not enough to have the, the methods available because you need the infrastructure and you need the expertise as well to be able to produce the vaccine. So a lot of countries didn't get to that point for a good number of years to come. And I think this contrasts very interestingly with COVID, of course, right? And, and the way the COVID vaccine or vaccines have been developed and especially at this time and place, right? So who is getting these vaccines? Who is not getting these vaccines, who doesn't have access to these vaccines. I mean, I, I would say personally that COVID is also a, a sun type problem, right? I mean, everyone is encountering the same problem. We're all in this together, but the COVID vaccines are both more politicized and also more commercialized, which is interesting to think about it, right? Because we're talking about the Cold War period, which the way we tell the story today, at least the way I understand that period, was a very politicized period. So it's, again, it's, it's an interesting contrast to think about. 
the polio is a disease that really, really messed up the idea that I had about the Cold War in my head. And I still <laughs> trying to understand, you know, what the, the Cold War was actually. It shows it's so complicated. Whenever uh, one moment you look at it, you look at one aspect of the disease, one aspect of the vaccine, for instance, and vaccination, and it's super political. You, you, you can definitely see the ideological, geopolitical divide there. And then you look away, you look back and it's gone. There's no Cold War. It's just you know, collaboration and we're all in this together. You turn a page again and boom, there it is, um, but in a different way. It's, it's a kind of like a moving map. It, it's very hard to pin down. But of course, the you know the pharmaceutical market and the global pharmaceutical structures have changed significantly then, which is one of the explanations. Also, at that time in the 1950s, uh, in a lot of countries, there was significant, very significant um, state investment in pharmaceutical production. So you had state institutes that were producing vaccines, which is also a, a big difference. But, you know, apart from the from the ideology of, yes, you cannot patent the sun and and this is uh, this should be made available for everyone. There was a very big shortage of uh, polio vaccine uh, when it was first licensed in the United States. And and people just, you know, a lot of countries didn't have enough access to it or could not afford to buy it. And that was also, you know, used in different political ways to um, that kind of what we call vaccine diplomacy, I guess, um, <laughs> was already <laughs> fully at play at the time. Yeah. And I guess, again, there are obvious comparisons to today to COVID. So maybe we could turn now to your work in particular, since you've hinted at how much the polio story really seems to destabilize the Cold War story that many of us grew up learning, listening to our parents about these, you know, apocryphal good and evil stories. Could you first maybe give us some background on the public health system such as it exists in Hungary in the post-war period, right? I mean, it's a rebuilding state after much of it's destroyed during World War II. It's obviously within the Soviet bloc by, you know, the 50s fairly firmly, but maybe just lay out some basics that maybe challenge some of the things people know about healthcare on the other side of the Iron Curtain. Sure. You know, just to, <laughs> before I get into some of the details, we still don't know a whole lot about exactly how this <laughs> worked um, in Eastern European countries, because this history has not really been written um, and definitely not systematically, which is one of the things I'm trying to do um, in the next couple of years. But essentially, one of the, the the huge difference from you know uh, pre-war to to post-war in Hungary and in, in countries like Hungary after the communist takeover was um, that uh, health became a cornerstone in and very symbolic in providing uh, uh, universal access to everyone. And before the war, there were um, there was an insurance system which excluded a lot of uh, especially working class people from, uh, from a lot of access to healthcare. This was um, very much uh, seen as a goal to establish. But of course, uh, the destruction was also huge uh, in Eastern Europe. Uh, so you had um, very meager resources uh, and uh, and sometimes not enough buildings even to uh, to house <laughs> to do the the healthcare in. But in the 1950s, the, the healthcare system began to be um, built up. It was different in uh, most of the in every Eastern European country. So there's not like a uniform Sovietization going on, which is also kind of goes against how we usually think about uh, how about the Cold War and the Soviet bloc, that kind of the Soviet Union just uh, swoops in and and you know tells everyone what to do, how to do it, and then um, that kind of uh, becomes uniform. There was a lot of negotiations, a lot of variety uh, among the different countries. This free healthcare and um, also led to some of the uh, aspects of uh, of dealing with diseases uh, to be very medicalized, because uh, for instance, you know what happens uh, in the case of polio. Um, polio patients who ended up needing long-term care, for instance, uh, respiratory care, um, iron lung patients, ended up living in hospitals for years or decades because there was this paternalistic state that would take care uh, of the patients. And, uh, and so 
that would happen in a medical setting, which would mean that the care itself became much more medicalized than in the, than in other places. Because they were very meager resources that also um, gave way to uh, innovative solutions. Uh, what I found is that uh, uh, when the Swedish experts were visiting Hungary to get an idea of, you know, how the how the epidemic is going, what's happening on the ground, they were very impressed to see how Hungarian physicians were making use of respiratory devices to um, help not one, you know, but five um, children or infants breathe. So they modified um, machinery to just make it um, available to to a wider um, population. That was uh, something that came out of it. And that also then affected um, vaccination uh, methods to kind of make the same amount of resources go a longer way. And that is sometimes seen as uh, as why the salt vaccine failed in uh, in Hungary, which it did. Wait, so why? <laughs> why did the salt vaccine fail? Yeah, that's a <laughs> that's a, it's a good question that um, you know I don't think we have a clear answer to. It was something that. Uh, uh, that I think is a big uh, an important part uh, of the polio story, not only for Hungary, but uh, globally, because obviously the Salk vaccine, which was seen as this enormous medical triumph of the 1950s worldwide, suddenly there were some countries that it just didn't work in. And, and you would have, uh, after vaccinating the population, you would have an almost equally big um, outbreak. Um, and that, that was kind of a, uh, taken into account uh, on uh, in the WHO, for instance, when they were assessing um, vaccines as well. Now, the Salk vaccine um, <laughs> didn't uh, didn't work. They thought for, at first that it worked because as we uh, discussed, polio didn't come every year. So after the most severe outbreak of 1957, there was a year when there was basically no polio. So everybody was kind of relieved that we vaccinated the population and now everything's going to be fine. But in 59, there was a huge epidemic and uh, a kind of finger pointing began. So the government and the state was uh, pointing to the parents that they were irresponsible. Um, the, the state made all these sacrifices to make the vaccine available, but uh, they didn't uh, bring their children. Not, not enough people brought their children to be vaccinated. They were not appreciating um, this. They were not responsible enough. The parents were pointing to the state. There were rumors that the state was actually did not manage to get enough vaccine. And they were halving the doses to make it seem as if there was enough. So it was the whole thing was worthless and they were cheated. The doctors were saying that um, uh, actually there wasn't a vaccine and the people were coming as well, but the equipment that they had, the needles were such bad quality that they were just losing vaccine left and right. That, that, was, a, that was a huge problem. Uh, virologists were saying that actually, well, the sock vaccine is not that efficient. <laughs> so it's actually just the imperfection of the vaccine itself. It's just not a good vaccine. Um, and that is what's um, causing the problem. So there was kind of a lot of um, uh, a lot of discussions around this and a lot of blaming uh, going uh, around and uh, most of you know which was uh, was around this trying to find the responsibility of either this paternalistic state that was providing or the ungrateful population uh, or you know some somewhere um but then at that moment that was the moment when the Sabin vaccine which was basically developed together um, with Soviet virologists in the Soviet Union uh, and, and with a huge mass trial, that's when the first uh, uh, results of the Soviet trials came in. And the Hungarian government was one of the first to get in there and uh, get hold of some vaccine, do a trial in Hungary, and then um, introduce that. That's very interesting. So could you maybe say a bit more about the, the geopolitical context in which all this is happening. So we're talking about the 50s, Europe, Eastern Europe specifically, and in 1956, there's the Hungarian Revolution. And then a couple of years afterwards, the Soviet Union just hands over these vaccines to Hungary as if, I mean, everything is like all good and we've kind of like forgot all those, those issues we had a few years ago. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was such a 
busy and heavy um, decades, especially in, in Hungary. Yeah, so of course, in 1956, you have this huge revolution that uh, becomes uh, quite a bloody affair and thwarted by, by Soviet tanks, um, essentially followed by a lot of um, uh, show trials and, and executions and incarcerations. Over 200,000 people leave, um, almost a quarter of a million people leave during the revolution, which, you know, given that the population of Hungary is 10 million, it's quite a big um, percentage uh, of the population. So you have this really shaky internal situation and the standing of the Hungarian new Hungarian post-revolutionary government is not very good internationally. So there's a UN committee looking into uh, the, the 1956 uh, revolution. And so they're right after, like really months after um, this, when this uh, first enormous um, epidemic breaks out. And that's when they tried to get the Salk vaccine. And uh, they they really need to deal with this. They're under a lot of pressure um, to deal with this uh, epidemic well, because the situation is, is kind of um, shaky. So it's very interesting what you can see how there, there's a kind of normalization and uh, from, from a chaos of a revolution to sliding into a kind of quite strict exertion of political power uh, as 1957 goes on. And then in the middle of, you know, people being incarcerated, you have the, the newspaper, you have the government saying, oh, you know, these people who just left last year, these quarter million people. Well, if you have any vaccines, access to vaccines in the West, do send them in packages. We're just going to like expedite them through. We're not going to hold them up. Just, you know, send whatever you you have, you know, which is which is really, um, really weird. I was I was very surprised by that. And then a couple of months later, you have this celebration of this West German pilot who comes and saves the day. He's the one who's bringing in the boxes of, uh, of vaccine. And he's doing this on his day off and on a Swiss plane. And it's a, it's a huge uh, thing because he just couldn't rest until all the Hungarian mothers were, you know, could, uh, could know their children in safety. It's, 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 it's really wild um, <laughs> because at the same time, you know, it, it's pretty, you know, imperialist West, this and, and the dangerous um, capitalist that, so it's a, it's a really weird way that it, this epidemic situation messes with these um, politics. So this is a West German pilot. Yeah, yeah, kind of wild. So how do we explain that? I mean, the positive stuff, right? We'll use the West German pilot as the individual to stand in for this. This seems to be, at least in a Western context, from what I've read, less reported. So how are these top-level fights going on at the same time as we might say everyone else is actually trying to work together. I mean, how does this actually function aside from a pure cognitive dissonance on the front pages of papers? I think this reveals something important about the Cold War itself, that we cannot understand it merely as a, as a high-level military and, and geopolitical divide and ideological uh, divide, that there is a lot of space and flexibility, even within the high high level stuff, as the situation requires. The way I try to describe this is as, as if holes were opening and closing on the Iron Curtain. So it's it's not always permeable, but it's much more dynamic than it's it's not a wall that um, that separates east from west. It's a kind of uh, more science fiction-y, you know, portals <laughs> opening left and right that things happen through. And there are these safe spaces that especially this epidemic um, creates where, where people can come together. So how exceptional is Hungary in this story? Are these holes in the Iron Curtain, do these portals in the Iron Curtain, I guess, do they happen more frequently in Hungary? Or would you say that it's the same in, in other Eastern European countries as well, or Western European countries too? I think it's not totally unique to Hungary, and I would even say that it's not totally unique to polio either, although there is something unique, of course, in both. Polio, because of it, was such a strong symbolic disease on uh, on both sides, and Hungary because of the revolution, and then because of its 
specific political uh, situation in the 1950s, it becomes one of the first countries to then introduce the Sabin vaccine again, because they need to handle the situation. They need to handle this um, epidemic. The state kind of needs to prove their worth in a way that makes it special. But Czechoslovakia, for instance, is another country where you can see a lot of kind of these Western collaborations and fluidity um, going on. What becomes very interesting is that what was a very collaborative East-West issue, for instance, the development of the Sabin vaccine, then becomes politicized again. So going from this, we're all in this together, um, American Soviet, there is no Cold War, as Basil O'Connor says in 1960 at an international um, polio conference. And they're very conscious of this, that when it comes to our work, you know, there is no Cold War. But then the way that the seven vaccine starts traveling around the world does happen along um, geopolitical lines. So what you see is uh, Eastern Europe is kind of the first area in the world that really is, it gets um, polio under control. With Czechoslovak uh, expertise, virologists and Soviet uh, vaccine, Cuba becomes the first uh, country in the Western Hemisphere to eliminate polio. The Sabin vaccine from the Soviet Union is exported and we don't know exactly, or I, I don't know at this point exactly um, what the financial implications of this, of how much of this is aid and how much of this is sale. It's usually represented as aid, you know, to, to Northern Africa, to Asia, to India, um, to Latin America. There, it's it's kind of becomes part of this competition for hearts and minds um, in the 1950s and 60s. And I guess you can draw, again, parallels to today and, and the ways in which vaccines, again, are being politicized. Specifically, I'm thinking about the Russian Sputnik vaccine and who is using that vaccine and who is not using who or who is encouraged not to use that vaccine. Yeah, exactly. And you know how we understand that the seven vaccine was also distrusted in the United States initially. You know, the, the trials were done in the Soviet Union and the Soviets, you know, they lie all the time. They're falsified data. How could we trust this? So they had to send um, an American virologist, Dorothy Horstman, to the Soviet Union, who went uh, kind of under the aegis of, uh, of the WHO to look at the data, to look at the trials and to verify that, like, this is actually what they're saying. And actually... Because it's the Soviet Union, that's why we can trust it, because they have that kind of top-down you know, structure where, where they can actually mobilize so many people and make sure that you know, it's well-documented and, and it works. There, there is also an interesting story here about the relationship of a kind of so-called authoritarian regime and epidemic management that, uh, that plays into this. And I think you see the same thing again today with China and the ways in which China was spoken about in the West, both more positively, they can solve this in very authoritarian ways because there's such an authoritarian state on one hand, but on the other hand, yeah, they're lying, they're hiding material stuff from us. I mean, even now, right? It may have been developed in China. Who knows? We need to check that again. It's the same discourse with different players, I guess, or not really so much different players. As I'm reading the news about the COVID vaccines and how these vaccines travel and also the kind of political undertones of how news is represented, I'm because I'm also thinking a lot about, you know, how things end and maybe, you know, the, the Cold War, can, has it really ended? <laughs> because you can see the, you know, the links and kind of pathways that were established there being mobilized over and over again. Um, you can see tropes of how we talk about things, of how we think about whole groups of people or whole um, parts of the world that we have maybe very little information about, but very strong, you know, stereotypes and very strong tropes that suddenly this kind of the same kind of expressions and terms of phrases appear. Uh, so that's a very uh, interesting part uh, to look at. You know, I wouldn't think of it as a as a new Cold War, but more like a, a Cold War that that hasn't really ended in the way that we like to um, make a clear cut in the, in time. That's probably a nice actually way to move to the last set of topics I wanted to ask you about, which is the end of epidemics, pandemics. I think this is now moving or is at the forefront of people's minds uh, during COVID. So at some point in Hungary, enough people get vaccinated that the polio epidemic or epidemics go away, quote unquote. That's kind of the maybe traditional story. 
could you maybe flesh that out for us in more detail? And then we'll turn to perhaps some new ways of thinking about ends of epidemics and pandemics. Actually, the way that polio ends in Hungary started to make me think about uh, epidemic endings uh, in more general. So what happens is that when they introduced the Sabin vaccine in late 1959, from then on, apart from smaller um, localized outbreaks, basically there is no no more um, epidemic waves in Hungary. 1963 is the last year when there is the, a group of people who um, who get ill. And from then on, basically, it's gone. And what happens when it's, you know, when it's gone, that it's no longer seen as a priority. Of course, because polio is not like a cholera, you know, that, that it kills off tons of people and then it's gone and, you know, people are not dying anymore. And that's it. Polio leaves behind a lot of people uh, who are burying it on their bodies. They're constant reminders of it. Um, but also they're, they still live with the disease. So the disease doesn't disappear just because there are no more epidemic outbreaks. But as a priority for, for the state, it's no longer there. Polio is over. And so what happens is that uh, the funding is over as well. There's one specialized polio hospital. They close it down, turn it into a general children's hospital. They send home all the patients. The funds for, for research dwindle and, and people have less and less resources to, to deal with the disease that they're going to live with um, all their life. What this meant that that polio was um, that this ending of polio um, excluded these people. They they became invisible. Also, reminders of a failure from the state's perspective that they didn't prevent this, that these epidemic outbreaks happened, um, and, and constant reminders. There's also the issue of what to do with these people, how to make them productive members of society. In the case of Hungary, it also um, comes with another interesting. Uh, aspect is that the people themselves who are living with polio feel abandoned by the state. The state is not doing its job. There's a kind of, you know, contract that in this society, you know, there's a lot of things that are missing. There's a lot of, you know, things that are not working so well, but the deal is that the state is going to take care of whoever, you know, they need to take care of and they feel abandoned. So when they grow up in the 19, early 1980s, the children grow up to become adults, they um, uh, think to my, themselves that, okay, the state is not going to take care um, of us, so we'll have to take care of each other. They form a civil society, of a disability um, society, which is particularly interesting because I don't know of many other uh, societies or any kind of civil uh, organization under these uh, state socialist regimes that are not based on political dissent. So just to clarify, how many people are we talking about? That's a good question. Um, in the 1960s, they would say that it's every 500th person. So it's a, it's a couple of thousand people, basically. I don't have exact numbers. It's not a, not a very small number of people, but it's it's not a huge part of society. So I think as we prepare to wrap up this discussion, I think you've actually left a few tantalizing possibilities, clues, ideas that maybe I want to push you on a bit more. So is there a way you could see us summoning this historical knowledge, whether it be through these associations that were formed in Hungary, for example, or others on polio that we can use to push to the fore to help shape future COVID policy, right? In the sense of, as we all know, there's going to be a lot of people who are going to be marked by this disease who don't die. And there are definitely ways we're going to have to keep thinking about COVID once the actual pandemic is quote unquote over. So do you have any thoughts on how we can push that through to policy rather than just kind of forgetting about these people? I think that's a, such a great question and a very important one. What, when I was looking at the history of polio, what kept coming up is that we really need to rethink how we tell the stories of epidemics, but also how we tell the stories as we're living through them. And to really think about the narrative of a pandemic and what the ending of that is, that ending is extremely messy. Just the, the declaration of an ending has uh, enormous consequences for different people. And I think to answer your question for policy, 
I would say that for epidemic planning already, you would have to consider that ending because in the planning, there is a way to push down infection rates and to restore you know, healthcare um, uh, structures and so on and so forth. But you know, how we determine the ending and where that planning ends, I think is uh, needs more thought. And we need to um, plan for the after as well and see who, who gets left out. So kind of re- defining what the actual, you know, where the boundaries of the epidemic are, I think is is very important because it has uh, very important uh, consequences for funding and for the prioritization of, uh, of certain issues. Right. And I guess, so one final question to wrap things up, and this might be a bit provocative, I guess. So in the context of your research on polio and the Cold War context and maybe our discussion today about COVID, COVID's implications. Would you say there is anything we should learn or or maybe take from socialized or socialist medicine? Well, first of all, I'm not, I always think that kind of the, the lessons from history is, is, is kind of a problematic one. Partly, I would say that uh, it's more of the the kind of questions that we can ask uh, looking at, at past epidemics that that I think uh, is is a very useful thing to do. But I would highlight that what eventually becomes a success in this socialist world of, of polio uh, uh, management is uh, is really a combination of two things. It's the combination of a a kind of top-down techno fix of a vaccine uh, that is uh, collaboratively developed and produced, and it's available um, uh, and freely available, uh, not patented, uh, so it, it can um, travel uh, and be accessible for a wider global public. But that kind of top-down intervention is matched with very much established horizontal structures. So uh, you can see in the Soviet Union, in Eastern Europe, as badly as it may work because of you know, lack of resources and so on, you have uh, a, really that kind of access, um, horizontal access, virology um, uh, stations uh, and clinics together with Red Cross volunteers uh, and nurses that are able to also participate in this. So it's it's kind of the meeting of the two that I think are both important in this. So I think on that note, we will wrap up this episode. So I just wanted to thank you so much, Dora, for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. This was um, great and a lot of fun. Thanks for the questions. Yeah, thanks so much, Dora. It's been great. So I thought that was one of our most instructive and informative discussions when it came to comparing a disease with what's happening during COVID today, right? I mean, there are very strong direct parallels. Yeah, and these very two similar cases essentially invite you to draw parallels between them. And this is even more the case today, right? In the context of the COVID vaccine or vaccines, again, being developed and and how they spread around today, their connection to politics, all these points that we've touched upon during the interview. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I at least had saved all our kind of COVID comparison questions or question for the end, as we often do. And we often unfairly, I think, spring it on our guests. But actually, this was one of the most natural kind of back and forth discussions where you can see a lot of parallels that feature in both. So how, how aware do you think is the general public with regards to the politicization of vaccines today? Outside the borders of, I mean, in your case, the United States, or in, in my case, Israel. At least in a U.S. context, in terms of mainstream news, New York Times, Washington Post, those type of places, the most I ever see discussed is should we export vaccines or should we not? If so, how much, to whom, and when? But it's very top-level generalities, I would say, right? So should we keep stockpiling our own? Should we not? 
but we don't really get into the specifics of which country we're sending stuff to, when, how much, which vaccines, is it stuff we've already purchased and we're not going to use. I think that does exist in the news, but I don't think it's reported on all that much. And I don't know why. It could just be because we live in such a large country where we're talking about the disparities in vaccine distribution within states and between various communities. But it's just not something that's at least mainstream touched upon aside from that general question. I think it's a difficult discussion to be had, right? Because there are so many different countries and most people probably don't know much about each of those countries. So there's simply too many moving parts to keep track of, I would say, in the mainstream news context. Yeah, I think once you get past essentially Western countries that everyone knows, whatever that means, if you asked people what countries in Africa, as just one example, we should prioritize sending vaccines to, I don't think anyone would really have any idea or enough idea about many of those countries. Right. And then there's also the question of how many vaccines are you sending, right? Because if you're sending 5,000 vaccines or 10,000 vaccines, such as certain countries have done, those vaccines are probably not going to go to the general population. I mean, you could probably assume that they're going to go to elites of some sort and maybe some first respondents, the, the healthcare community there. Yeah, we'll see how this plays out as more and more countries that have first access to vaccine start to develop enough. And obviously, to an extent, I would like to see many of these vaccines given out for free or extremely cheap amounts of money, but you know, I won't hold my breath. Yeah, I think one thing that's very clear is that these vaccines are not free. And both supply is limited, but also cost is an issue. And as far as I understand, and I might, I might be wrong, and this is actually a question that we might want to have an episode about, maybe find someone who can talk about this, but it'd be interesting to see a bit which countries are being vaccinated now, right? I mean, are these only Western and Western affiliated countries, or do we see other maybe less wealthy countries that are also getting vaccinated at similar rates? Yeah, I think your point on doing an episode on this when we know how this is developing around the world in the next three to four months, I think would be a good way forward. One other aspect that she mentioned that I didn't know about polio was how research on it, when it happens, where kind of the basic epidemiology essentially has stopped for the most part because it's no longer a feared disease. So I think that's actually an interesting point that she raised. Right. And that ties into the structures that, that govern academia and research more broadly. Someone needs to, to fund these studies. And once the incentive isn't there anymore, once we have a vaccine, we've kind of solved this problem, quote unquote, even though we haven't really solved the problem, as Dora mentioned at the near the end of the interview, funding just dries up and goes to, to the next big thing. And I think this has been very obvious with COVID the other way around, right? So once COVID started, everyone kind of dropped everything they were doing, or at least that's how I saw this. Lots of different labs dropped everything they were doing and started working on COVID because this was the thing to be worked on and because this was much easier to work on at the moment because of the very generous funding that was flowing in. I'm assuming that at some point funding for COVID will dry up at least partially and hopefully much later, some new big disease, epidemic, pandemic will show up and funding will flow there all over again. Yeah, I've seen some research done on this. I think it was some social science side where they've pointed this out, right? That there's a COVIDification of disease funding, right? That all the money just suddenly overnight shifted to that. And if you wanted to fund anything, you just throw COVID in the title or say it's COVID related and you can get some money. And then, you know, the next thing will come up and we'll transfer everything there. Right. I think this happened with Ebola too, right? Because of the 2014 Ebola outbreak, all the money went to that, right? And then it all went to Zika and then on down the line. And this doesn't seem like it's going to stop. Yeah. And I think here again, it's important to note that the humanities are a bit different because we, broadly speaking, humanities are not as dependent on these funding structures. There are obviously negative sides to this, but one of the positive sides is that we're 
somewhat freer to work on whatever we're interested in. And the topics we research are not as strongly determined by the zeitgeist, so to speak, of whatever is hot now. Yeah, we're free to be poor and underfunded no matter what. So, you know, I guess that's a win. It is, it is, yeah. Everyone should become humanists. Now, another point I think that came across near the end of the interview, which was a question you mentioned, Merle, was about the ways in which we think about the, the ending of an epidemic or a pandemic. And this has really been something I think both of us have seen in our own research on the Justinianic plague and is something that has also come across in several of the episodes that we've had so far. I think what com what comes to my mind is, again, our, the quintessential movie that we keep returning to, or one of the two, Contagion, that ends when a vaccine is being developed and, and when it starts to be hand handed out, essentially, even though it, it doesn't necessarily really solve anything as we've seen and experienced during COVID. Yeah, I mean, our own work, we've always wondered why the Justinianic plague just quote unquote ends in 750, right? And people essentially make up scientific epidemiological reasons for this that are entirely conjecture. But probably what happens is it doesn't end, right? The whole process is much messier, just like Thora just laid out, right? And you have to think about, at least in the case of polio, because she works on a much smaller time scale, obviously, than we do, but that there are people who are still affected, just like COVID is going to keep affecting people. And it's going to keep popping up just like polio keeps popping up around the world. And so that these are much longer things that are not as neat of a story, as neat of a script as we often make it out to be. Yes. Although on the other hand, there are, again, a lot of vested interests, both on the side of historians, but also on the side of, of let's say, politicians to point to a certain point in time and say, okay, yes, this is where things end. And that helps whatever purpose those individuals or institutions or, or countries are, are aiming at. Yeah, I think there's definitely an incentive for politicians to say they vaccinated everyone as a way to increase their own popularity and get reelected, for example. Yeah, and I can say quite a bit more about that. So as we wrap up this episode, it's spring now, and so it's getting nicer out. Are you going on more fun adventures with your daughter? I know she's a little older. Yeah, so as, as a matter of fact, we have. We have over this past week. Uh, we took her to a cave, which used to be like a... Actually, it's an ancient cave, probably from dating to, to Roman times to one of the big revolts in Judea, so the, the area that is currently Israel-Palestine against the Romans. So this used to be a cave in which, I guess, rebels hid in. And the entire cave is is marked, but it's still probably about 15 or 20 minutes of you crawling in. And so adults have to crawl. Obviously, my daughter, who's like one, <laughs> to crawl to. And it's in complete darkness. They have to bring either flashlights or, or candles or your cell phones, which is what we did. But we actually, all of us, so my wife and I and my daughter and our dog, and we all kind of crawled through. Some parts were more challenging. I mean, we, my wife and I had to take care of both small creatures essentially and kind of like lower them and hold them and, and so on in more difficult parts. But I think it was a fun experience, definitely for my daughter. My dog, I'm not sure he, he really liked it all that much. I, I, I think it's, it's unusual for dogs to be underground for so long. I like that in Israel, it seems to me, everything cool, fascinating is somehow related to one of the like Jewish revolts against the Romans. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a fair point, I guess. It's, it's part of our, our national and nationalist history. There are certain sites that, at, at least when I grew up, we had to go and visit maybe multiple times to kind of establish our birth as a nation, so to speak. Yeah, so that, that's been my adventure. What about you, Merle? Have, have you guys been going on any adventures? I mean, it seems much nicer where you are at than where I'm at at the moment. I think here we're at a cold spell, so we don't really leave the house all that much or as frequently as we would have wanted to do over the past week or two. But for you, I mean, I think the weather is much nicer. So have you been going outside at all? Yeah, no, we've been outside a lot. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, 
we're in a house on the Eastern shore. So I think we're going to use that to explore more outside places. We're on a, basically a old farm. So there's a lot of space here. I think three or four acres for the kids to run around. Just happened to really heavily rain last night. So of course they ran around in giant boots and got themselves completely muddy. So that's always exciting. But my daughter actually likes to throw fits when she walks too far and will just lie down. So when we're coming back from the place we go for second breakfast, as we call it on Fridays, after their chocolate croissant, we're walking home, which is not very far. It's about four or five blocks. She'll just get up on people's like stone ledges and just lie there and refuse to move. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, children can be fun. I'm, I'm discovering. Yeah, I just don't understand how we evolved. How did we survive so far? <laughs> it boggles my mind. Well, I'm glad you're learning basic science now through your daughter. That's good to hear. Oh, definitely. I'm learning a lot. Learning science, learning psychology. There's a lot of stuff to be learned. So on this point of learning, learning from the world, from our children, and so on, we would conclude this episode by, as usual, thanking the LePage Center for funding us and, of course, our webmaster, Verder Kanati. Until next time, stay safe, stay socially distanced, and enjoy the spring weather outside.